Morning. Whoa. Wow. Was that loud? That sounded loud from here. So I guess we can get that. That's about right, I guess. I feel like I'm like super loud. I probably need to hear this more than you, so that's a good thing. Um, well, good morning. I should probably provide a, a brief self-introduction since many of you don't know who I am. Um, my name is Keith Thompson, and uh, besides a three-year stay in Louisville from 2015 to 2018, uh, Marcia and my kids, Caleb, Eli, and Sydney, back there in the back, um, we've been members here for, for almost 10 years. I've been involved in lay ministry for almost 25 years, both in the church and in the public square. Um, professionally, I've spent my career in the area of human resources. Um, if, you're, if you compare human resources to sports, it's like being the recruiter and the coach. You get to search for the best talent, identify the best position for the players, and then lead them toward their best performance. HR is really a form of community building. And I found that whether you're trying to build a company, develop the cure for a disease, win a Super Bowl, or climb Mount Everest, community and culture drive the success of an organization. And I love the notion of community. And I believe God makes a big deal out of community. As Justin said a couple of weeks ago, the church is the community of the kingdom. Marcia and I are directors of a camp ministry that hosts family camps each year. And this past year, our curriculum was anchored to Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Our first session at camp this year examined a biblical theology of peace, including the implications for the community of the kingdom. Mitch and the elders felt it might be helpful for me to share this material as the church works through life stance on church and mission. We wanted to highlight connections between peacemaking and reconciliation in 2 Corinthians 5. So this morning, after working through the text, we're going to discuss the rich biblical concept of peace, which I would argue is the most significant result of reconciliation. Finally, I would like to suggest six applications for us in the local church and the community. But before we get started, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to be here and thank you for this church. Thank you for what it stands for. Uh, Lord, thank you for its music. Thank you for its pastors. Thank you for the people who do this good work that even now we're just we were just discussing lord i pray that um that your word would come alive in us holy spirit i pray that you would teach us and instruct us change us place us in a spot where we can obey you better and lord i pray that you would just um draw us close to get closer together as a community because we were here this morning because we opened your word we ask all these things in christ's name amen so if you would turn to second corinthians 5 11 to 21 so the letter to the Corinthian church was received by a people who, although separated from us by a couple thousand years, they're really a lot like us. In 50s A.D., when the, church, when the letter was written, Corinth was a land of opportunity. Greek Corinth had been devastated by the Roman Republican armies almost 200 years before, and the years following, Corinth began the process of redefining itself. It emerged from the destruction as a new land of opportunity, even for those who came from the lowest socioeconomic classes. The Roman practice of patronage provided access to fame and fortune for practically anyone who wanted it. But as noted by one archaeologist who studied the region, self-promotion became an art form. People lived with honor within an honor-shame orientation. Corinth was a magnet for the socially ambitious and status-hungry people. And the tendencies for self-promotion had crept into the Corinthian church, 
creating conflict that Paul hoped to remedy through a series of letters, one being 2 Corinthians. The church had been dealing with a personality-driven division inside a community that was enjoying physical prosperity. The Corinthian church was grappling with which world they belonged to. They were struggling with fully embracing the message of the cross in light of contemporary cultural messaging. These ideas warred against their spiritual growth and understanding. And as we read Paul's comments to that community this morning, we should keep in mind that he is actively working toward both reconciliation between members inside the church and reconciliation between himself and those working to discredit him. In 2 Corinthians 5, 11 to 21, Paul speaks out against his naysayers. After reminding them of his faithful service to them and others, he grounds his behavior in the love of Christ. Paul then asserts that because believers have died with Christ, they no longer live with themselves. Live for themselves. They live for Christ. As a result, they don't view others the way they used to. Paul concludes the section noting that all of this is from God. The consequence of God's work in us is that we have been given a ministry of reconciliation, driven by the understanding that through Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. Finally, Paul acknowledges that we are able to accept this ministry because God has first reconciled us. So we pick up in verse 11, where Paul says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul's reference to the fear of the Lord comes from the immediately preceding comments in verses 9 and 10. There, Paul says, we act because we, quote, aim to please the Lord. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Christians have the privilege of knowing how the story ends. We know that all of human history is coming to a certain climax, when the true king will arrive and carry out judgment. As children of the king, heirs of the promise, We anticipate this day with hope and joy, but we should also understand that every human being will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is important as we think through what it means for us to be given the ministry of reconciliation. Now, hear me clearly when I say that we are saved by grace and not by works. The Bible teaches over and over again that we can't earn our way to salvation, can't earn our way to heaven. Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, makes it clear in Ephesians 2 that we achieve peace with God through faith not by our own works. But on that day of judgment, citizens of the kingdom will be judged by Christ according to our deeds on earth. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 27, the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. John Piper says, and I agree with him, that our deeds will be the public evidence brought forth in Christ's courtroom to demonstrate that our faith is real. And our deeds will be the public evidence brought forth to demonstrate the varying measures of our obedience. In other words, salvation is by faith and rewards are by faith. But the evidence of invisible faith in the judgment hall of Christ will be a transformed life. So knowing that human beings, both believers and unbelievers, will face Christ on the day of judgment, we're exhorted by Paul to both warn others and obey the king. In chapter 13 of this same letter, Paul urges the Corinthians, examine yourselves, see whether you're in the faith, test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail the test. The remainder of verse 11 says, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is also known to you and your conscience. The Corinthian church is reminded as they deal with the controversy surrounding Paul, 
that God knows the truth. God knows Paul's heart and Paul's comforted by it. Everyone involved in this dispute, those who accuse Paul, those who simply are not sure, those who know and love Paul and trust Paul, even Paul himself, they're all known by God. None of those jockeying for influence operated apart from God's oversight. We can't hide our desires from God. Who we are is known to God. Paul continues in verse 12 of 2 Corinthians and saying, We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. Here, Paul is likely dealing with criticisms aimed at him for his lack of showmanship, or what some may have considered a lack of results. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Paul said, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. The ancient Greek world placed a high value on Greek rhetorical speaking skill. The ancient Greek world um, was filled with master orators who used rhetorical skill to persuade the crowds. Paul had no intention to impress the community with his speaking skill. Paul knew that the results from his preaching and teaching came by the power of the Spirit. Without the Spirit, his message was foolishness. In a stroke of pragmatism, Paul tells him, Look, if you think we're crazy, that's between us and God. But if you think we say something that makes sense to you, then you have much to gain by paying attention to our instruction. Verse 13 says, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. The reason Paul is engaged with a community of people nearly 1,500 miles from his home is because of his love for Christ. Paul no longer lives for himself. There's nothing in it for Paul except that it makes it except that he makes it his aim to please the Lord. Paul endures the criticism because the love of Christ compels him to love others, including the confused and critical community in Corinth. At the beginning of his letter, Paul confessed that he wrote to them earlier with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Paul is getting ready to plead with the Christian community there to become ministers of reconciliation. Their motivation should spring from the gratitude because Christ has done so much for them. Continuing in verse 14 and 15, he says, Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The fact that Christ died for Paul was astonishing to him. Paul confessed to the church at the end of 1 Corinthians, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am who I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Paul refuses to let the grace of God that was so surprisingly issued to him go to waste. Because Christ died as a substitute for us, we died with him. Because of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, we no longer live for ourselves. Grace comes to us freely. We don't have to earn it. But it comes with a change of allegiance. Paul once pledged his allegiance to the rules and the regulations of the temple. Paul understood that he understood the giving of one's life to a cause because he had done that before he met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. Paul understood that one's worldview carried with it implications 
implications about how we spend our energies, our gifts, and our talents. There's too much at stake to simply coast along. But once he met Christ, those commitments were immediately reoriented. Paul was passionate about the truth, but now he saw differently. And was seeing differently, he acted differently. Verse 16 introduces the crux of the text. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Paul had been knocked to the ground, blinded, spoken to by a dead man, and then miraculously given back his sight. Once he experienced that, he never saw the world the same again. Previously, Paul viewed Christ as a disgraced, crucified heretic. Once he experienced the risen Christ, he knew that he had been horribly wrong. He once viewed Christ according to the flesh. He now viewed Christ according to the truth. Once you see Christ rightly, you see the world rightly. Once you taste Christ's goodness, everything changes. Those who have placed their allegiance in and their trust in and their hopes and lives in Christ find a transformed perspective. They have a new king, a new understanding of the world, and are preoccupied with a new mission. Paul continues, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. A kingdom member not only has his citizenship, citizenship changed, his very being has changed. He has been reborn. Because Christ has died our death, we have, been di- we have both died with him and been raised with him. Ezekiel, prophesying about, this, prophesying about this miraculous change, puts it this way, speaking of what Yahweh will do. I will cleanse you. I will give you a heart, a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Paul reminds the Galatian believers that the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Well, how is this possible? Well, it's a miracle. The Bible speaks of new birth in miraculous terms. Nicodemus was baffled by Christ's assertion that people must be born again. This notion is foolishness to those whose eyes have not been opened to it. Paul understands this, understands that this new creation talk may sound crazy. Therefore, he follows these comments with, all of this is from God. How does genuine lasting life change occur in a fallen, sin-prone human being? God has to do it. God sent Christ to the cross. God placed our guilt on Christ. God punished Christ instead of punishing us to demonstrate his loving kindness and mercy toward us. And with this miraculous redemptive act, we stepped into a new life, a new standing, a new inheritance, and a new mission. But Paul reminds us that this miracle comes with a calling. The rest of verse 18 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In one sense, the term reconciliation is an accounting term. It carries the notion of two sides of a scale being brought into balance. Usually the scale has a standard on one side, which is measured against something on the other side. 
In a sense, this is what Paul references. But God is righteous. God, because God is righteous and we are not, there must be a reconciliation. But there is a more accurate sense of the word in this context, and it's this. When something is reconciled, it is brought back into favor. Being reconciled to God is the process of being moved from the guilty side of the ledger to the not guilty, from the child of wrath side to the child of blessing, from the enemy of God to the heir of God, from alien to citizen, from sinner to saint, from slave to son. Now, standing in the state of one who has been reborn, we are qualified to be ministers of reconciliation. Human beings must have right standing before God before they can stand for God. In this letter, Paul lays a lengthy foundation before he begins to build the picture of a reconciliation ministry. Reconciliation ministry is built on a foundation of death with Christ, death to self, death to autonomy, and resurrection in Christ, resurrection of a new allegiance, resurrection of a new citizenship, all by a straight-out miracle of God. Spiritually dead people can't point others toward freedom. Spiritual navigation requires spiritual sight. Because Christians have new being, we have the privilege of successfully engaging in new doing. I think I got my pages mixed up. Maybe not. Verse 21 concludes the passage with, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Again, Paul reinforces the notion that to do God's work, we must be in a state of righteousness. This is not to suggest that we are perfect in action, but that we are perfect in being, perfect in standing before God. Paul knows that reconcilers must live exemplary lives. So he follows the call to be reconciled to God by immediately highlighting the fact that his ministry team behaved themselves in a way that would, quote, put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servant of God, we commend ourselves in every way, end quote. Paul follows with a long list of hardships his ministry team had endured on behalf of those they had ministered to, concluding with, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul lived out his worldview. Ambassadors are kingdom representatives. Foreign kingdoms observe an ambassador in an effort to capture the essence of the kingdom that ambassador represents. In a sense, the ambassador is the fleshing out of his home kingdom, To those who are foreign to it. If you want to know what the kingdom of God is like. Watch its citizens. Pay attention to its community life. Paul is saying that that his pattern of behavior. Is consistent with his claims about the kingdom. So the community of God. Are reconciled people. Called to a ministry of reconciliation. This transaction between God and the church. Is his primary instrument. To restore peace to the world. Romans 5, 1 to 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In verse 11 of the same chapter, Paul concludes the section with, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. As the community of the kingdom... Having been reconciled, we are at peace with God. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus notes that those who are the children of God are peacemakers. After this statement about peacemaking, Jesus identifies us as the light of the world. 
a city set on a hill, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. This Hebrew word was translated by Hebrew scribes into Greek as irene. As a Hebrew boy growing up in a Hebrew culture, Jesus' understanding of peace is informed primarily by the Israelite rich sense of shalom. Shalom in the Old Testament means whole, healthy, sound, full, complete. Shalom is the opposite of empty, broken, and chaotic. Shalom assumes, it takes for granted, and it's anchored to the presence of Yahweh. The one true God of creation, the God of Israel. Don't miss that. There is no shalom, no wholeness, no fullness without the presence of Yahweh. Therefore, peace in the mind of a first century Jew, even when spoken in Aramaic or Greek, had a sense of completeness, wholeness, general well-being, which brought with it a sense of harmony, security, and safety. The overwhelming biblical meaning of the word peace is well-being. It represents a state of being, not simply an emotional feeling. Well-being is the fullest sense of the word because it ultimately would include well-being before God, before others, and before self. One theologian captures the Old Testament meaning of shalom beautifully when he says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. On the seventh day of creation, God rested from his creative work. God, man, and all creation communed together with no relational barriers. All creation existed as it was meant to be, as it ought to be. God's ceasing of his work, called Shabbat or Sabbath, is mindful of rest and peace with creation. Shalom brings to mind a time when God was at peace with creation in the beginning. Shalom in the manifestation of God's presence with his people. It is the manifestation of his presence with his people. In the Hebrew mind, shalom was connected to tabernacle and temple. Along with with the sacrificial system, which made provision for a pure God to dwell with fallen people. So that wholeness and fullness could be recovered. One of the most beautiful aspects of the scriptures is that we can see in the old covenant themes that would point forward in greater realities in in the new covenant. It is amazing to think that as God was establishing the Levitical system connected to the tavern and the, t- the tabernacle and the temple, he was pointing forward to a building not built by human hands, constructed with human beings as living stones. First Peter says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ. So the old covenant temple was built with stones, according to God's instruction, on a hill so that the world could look up and see the presence of God and His glory. Fast forward to the New Covenant, and the temple is built with living stones, you and I, in a community of the kingdom so that the world could look no longer at a building, but at us and see the glory of God through a people who are tapped into the power and the wisdom of the one true God. There's a narrative recorded in the Old Testament that tells the story of the Queen of Sheba, who had come to see Solomon and the temple of his God, both of which had become famous because of their glory. 
When she arrived, she was blown away. She concluded that the stories had not done justice to the real thing. Now, transfer that principle to the new covenant. We are the temple now. Paul makes this astonishing statement in Ephesians 3.10. Through the church, us, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Think about that. As the temple was to the queen of Sheba, we are to be the manifestation of the glory of God, even to the spiritual powers in heaven. The ministry of reconciliation is a powerful demonstration of peacemaking on earth. So a biblical view of peace is much more than a sense of comfort or a lack of grief and distress. A sense of comfort would be a blessing, but that notion of peace is a shadow of the real thing. Peace certainly results in a lack of anxiety, but in its fullest sense, peace is the state of being as it should be. The psalmist describes a person at peace in terms of human flourishing. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season. This notion of firmly planted of a firmly planted tree <clears throat> involves one, a connection to a permanent source of nourishment and the production of fruit. The tree flourishes because it's connected to a source of nourishment and energy. This description of a believer brings to mind Jesus' repetitive use of the word blessed in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed, is the peace, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. The term blessed also carries a sense of flourishing. In fact, some Greek translators have suggested that a better translation of the Greek word should actually be flourishing. The community of the kingdom are doers of peace and are marked by relational flourishing. So we see that a biblical notion of reconciliation is again connected to peace with God and peace with man. The meta-narrative is always in the front of mind for a kingdom citizen. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. A biblical view of the world understands that humans enter the world separated from God in a state of brokenness. Man's greatest problem is his separation from the creator. Therefore, our greatest concern as citizens living in this period of redemptive history is reconciliation to the creator. This foundational aspect of human nature is the very lens through which we see the world and the people in it. Now, before we dive into application, I'd like to make a practical clarification about practical clarification about human behavior. Keep in mind that patterns of behavior are downstream from being. I'll say that again. Patterns of behavior are downstream from being. The distinction I'm trying to make is this. Single behaviors do not define who we are. It is what we do regularly as a pattern of behavior that flows from who we are. In other words, when we do what Paul suggests and we examine ourselves, it is patterns of behavior that are diagnostic. One act that does not define who we are. <clears throat> this is true of godly and ungodly behavior. If I happen to do this just because I was kind to Marcia this morning does not mean that I am a kind husband. Likewise, just because someone may have been rude to you this morning does not mean they are a rude person. It is patterns of kindness or rudeness that reveal what is in our hearts. Even Paul says that from time to time he does things he doesn't want to do and fails to do the things he wants to do. So when the Bible talks about sin in the life of a believer, it is patterns of sin that are described. When you hear these applications, hear them in that light. Now, although these principles have wide implications for the kingdom, I would like to focus on six points of application. And in light of the series, they're all aimed at the local congregation. So first, only reconciled people can engage in the ministry of reconciliation. There is no real peace without God. 
The awful truth is that our churches are filled with people who are separated from God. If you ever have an opportunity to spend some time with my mom, she might share with you about the years that she spent teaching Sunday school as a lost person faking peace. She knew the story of the gospel, but she also had a firm grip on the will of her life, unwilling to trust Christ with her marriage and her kids and her habits. Then at the age of 50, she told her Sunday school class that she was lost and was ready to submit to the king. She was ready to pledge full allegiance to Christ. She'll tell you, and I would too, that her life was dramatically changed. She was born again. From that point forward, her patterns of behavior changed. Like Paul, I would urge you to examine yourself. Ask yourself the hard questions about ultimate allegiance. Is there sufficient proof in your heart attitudes, your desires, the manner in which you spend your resources? Is there sufficient proof that you have given your life to the king and are legitimately serving his kingdom? Serving God effectively is not a matter of sheer willpower and discipline. Christian living is enabled by new birth, not a new effort or a rededication to trying harder or a new self-help strategy. As I said earlier, behavior is downstream from being. Today may be the day that the Lord is calling you, either for the first time or for the last time. Jesus is the only enduring life change strategy. And when he rules your heart, reconciliation is automatic. It is who you are. And like Paul, you are simply compelled by the love of Christ to do it. Second, all Christians are called to the ministry of reconciliation. By the power of the Spirit, be intentional about living exemplary lives. Paul understood that ultimately, if no one else did, God knew who he was. Paul wasn't boasting. He was simply acknowledging that there is comfort in knowing that God is the ultimate judge. And God knew his heart. Paul understood that he was the least of the apostles. He knew the horrors of his past. He also knew that he was forgiven. And that his life was not motivated to build self, but to build build the kingdom. God knows us. We can't hide from God. Our hearts and our deepest and truest desires are constantly open to him. And he loves us anyway. This should bring great comfort to us. It is also true that others likely know us better than we think. Paul told the Corinthians that God knows me. But those of you who have taken the time to really understand me, to spend time with me and pay attention to my life, you also know me and know that I am writing to you out of love and concern. Those who knew his pattern of living knew that he had sacrificed much for them and others. His life spoke for itself. The call to a ministry of reconciliation is a call to an exemplary life. So that when things get tough, the community around you knows what you're made of, what drives you. Because truth and time run together, an exemplary life history provided Paul with credibility and comfort in times of relational trouble. Along those lines, the community of the kingdom is a necessary source of support. A true, pure church is one that is filled with people who love as Christ loved. It is right-focused, other-oriented. And the only source of true peace in the world. That's a strong statement. But peace found outside the church is fake peace. Peace strategies found outside the church cannot bring wholeness, fullness, completeness that we were created for. Regardless of the comfort that it can bring now. I don't know all of you, but I know this about every one of us. We have desires in us that will destroy us if left unchecked. We need the community of the kingdom to help us crush those desires. 
We need the community of the kingdom to direct, encourage, support us toward the flourishing of the kingdom, of kingdom living. We need the community of the kingdom to make sure we are seeing the world correctly. Make sure we're seeing ourselves correctly. The only way to foster this kind of community is through authentic relationships. Human beings were created to be known. Fallen human beings tend to hide. What did Adam and, do, Adam and Eve do immediately after the fall? They hid. We read that and think, how ridiculous. Why did they think they could hide from God? Hmm, sounds familiar, doesn't it? There are several men in my life that know me. They really know me. They know my weaknesses and my struggles. And I know they love me. They have my back. I can be authentic with them. There's no value in being fake with them. Some of them are in this local community and some are in the wider community of the church. But I can't survive without them. God made me that way. And he made you that way. Outside of the community of the kingdom, you're vulnerable, at risk, open to the enemy's destruction in your life. Inside the community of the kingdom, you're supported, protected by healthy boundaries and have access to the care and the healing touch of the citizens of the king. Fourth, being a minister of reconciliation and a peacemaker requires a humble heart that acknowledges and respects the structures of the community. God has established in the New Testament a church structure that includes authority. Now, maybe I can say this with greater credibility because I'm not an elder, but godly eldership is from the Lord. It is God, not man, that has established eldership in the church. And we don't have time to go into church governance. But the point is this. God has placed authority in our lives in the local church for our good, not just for our limitation. Now, it must be acknowledged that some of us have experienced ungodly leadership and authority. But that does not disqualify this biblical mandate. If it did, bad marriages would disqualify the institution of marriage. We know that's not true. North Americans are a rebellious bunch. We love our autonomy, but personal, auto personal autonomy is a foreign concept to the community of the kingdom. Kingdom citizens embrace authority as a gift from God. The truth is that we all need correction from time to time from people who love us and care about us. The truth is that sometimes, maybe oftentimes, we're wrong. Of all people on earth, Christians should be the most coachable because we have the correct view of human nature. I'm reminded of a quote by Charles Spurgeon that says, Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> if he charges you falsely on some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation and you would be no gainer by the correction. Kingdom citizens are always open to constructive criticism and recognize that conflict is not a matter of if, but when. The Christian community should be the world's best conflict managers, period. We should crave constructive criticism because we crave growth in godliness. God uses institutions like the church and marriage to shape us, to form us into the people we can become. Embrace the authority of the local church and be open to all the benefits it brings. Fifth, maybe the most difficult application, peacemakers and reconcilers, reconcilers are people who control their tongue. One of the Proverbs asserts that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The longer I live, the more I realize and value the truth of this principle. It is not necessarily, necessarily easier to live by, but it is more and more believable as time goes on. 
Words are powerful. Every one of them. They have incredible power for building up and for tearing down. And they are nearly impossible to take back. Paul exhorted the Ephesian community to let no rotten or unfit for use word come out of your mouth. But only such as is good for the building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Paul had fallen out of favor with some in the community at Corinth because they had either spoken or believed rotten words that were unfit for use. The words spoken about Paul were simply not true, but sometimes words are true and still unfit for use because they are not good for building up or they do not fit the occasion or they do not give grace to those who hear. Gossip falls into this category. Even true things are not always fit for use. Many who are guilty of gossip assert, well, it's true. It very well may be true, but what is the intent of sharing the information? Is there a genuine, authentic desire to build up the community or give grace to the one you're speaking with? It is here that we are well instructed by the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 and 18. If you have something against a fellow kingdom member, or if you come to realize that he or she has something against you, don't even try to offer further Christian service until you've gone to them and have achieved reconciliation. A critical aspect of this instruction is to go to the person involved. In other words, if you're sharing the problem with everyone except the person involved, you're acting as a minister of poison instead of a minister of reconciliation. Do not go to everyone but the person with the problem. For some reason, human nature longs to share problems about other people with everybody except them. No, go to the person with whom you have the problem and deal with them first. If they're not willing to deal with it, find someone you trust, someone they trust, and go to them together. And get reconciliation. If reconciliation is not possible then. Go to the elders and the entire church. And if necessary. The elders may find it redemptive. To treat this person like an unbeliever. And cast them out of the fellowship. Now this seems harsh. But it highlights the importance of peace in the body. Now it's worth noting that sometimes. We have conflict with someone. In the big C church. That's not in our church. I would argue that this principle remains. Some would say that this is instruction only for the local body, but the principle here is that our ability to commune with God is affected by fractured relationships between believers, not just between church members. Jesus didn't say, if you have a problem with someone in your local church, go and do. He said, if you have a problem with your brother. The context of Matthew 18 deals with a church community, but the church in Paul's day had no notions of a church on every corner with a different leadership and a different denomination. If you interacted with a fellow believer in that community, most likely they were part of the same local body. The problem is that division among Christians is a problem before God. Lack of unity is a problem before God. Also, and this is critical, the lost world doesn't know which church you go to. They simply hear about the conflict, the lack of unity, and the lack of supernatural love. To them, it's a mockery of what they've heard about the promises in the scriptures. We simply must be reconcilers in all of our Christian relationships. But certainly there is no excuse for a lack of unity in the local congregation. And finally, a community that loves like Christ and sees the world from a biblical perspective is a manifestation of the kingdom now. I love being with my people, kingdom community people. I told our community group last week that I long for the fellowship of believers. I'm an introvert, so I don't gain energy for being in a crowd. But when I'm with people who know my king and love him and understand why I want to serve him, 
I can relax and get a glimpse of the coming kingdom in its fullness. The community of the kingdom is a place of acceptance, forgiveness, and joy. And when we interact with kingdom citizens who are struggling or having a rough time, we bear with one another. We encourage one another. Community is sacred. Community is the seat, the sacred storehouse of wisdom, where life is lived out, reinforced, driven down deep into our hearts and demonstrated. Community is a powerful instrument for the transmission of truth from generation to generation. Community gives culture staying power or permanence. Therefore, it simply must be guarded tenaciously. And when placed on a hill, it's a powerful draw to wholeness, fullness, safety, or peace. And when we bring a lost friend or acquaintance into that kind of community, the brokenness in their heart experiences the warmth of the light. We are a city on a hill that can't be hidden. The new temple of the living, healing, life-changing God. The world is watching us, and they need us because they need our king. They may not know it, but they need entrance into the kingdom, and we have been given the keys by Christ. The kingdom community is a temple on a hill. Be reminded that we and our families are the stones that make up that temple. It is on a hill for a confused, lonely, lost, searching world. The world is full of people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life, but have not yet entered in. Those people are trying to find us. They long for a light on a hill. What have they seen in us? Let's do the hard work of considering what it means to become peacemakers. Not only for the good of ourselves and our families, but for the world who is searching for their lost king. Let's do the hard work of linking our thoughts and our ideas, our view of ourselves and our role, to biblical reality. Let's submit ourselves to the scriptures with humility and meekness. There's much at stake and much to be gained by recommitting ourselves at any cost to the ministry of reconciliation and becoming children of God marked by peace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again um, for this community of the kingdom. Lord, I thank you for um, its leadership and what they stand for. I thank you for the opportunity to have been a part of this church for a long time. And Lord, I pray that your spirit would strengthen us, that you would guide us. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the power to follow and do, to be obedient, to live like you lived. Lord, I pray for this church. I pray for Mitch and the other elders. God, I pray that you would give them strength, that you would give them wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would... Continue to lead them as they lead us and that we would make a huge impact to continue to make a huge impact on this community and that this community would truly look up and see us and find something even greater maybe than what they imagined. We Lord, we ask all these things in Christ's name.